I am a little under the weather, and my voice is uh, uh, not good today, so bear with me, and I will do my best to um, honor the Lord in this passage that we come to, and this story that we have in Scripture. We're doing a series of messages from the Gospel of John, and we're meeting people who met Jesus. They... They had an encounter with Jesus, and the fruit of it changed them. And so far in the series, we've been introduced to a a prophet by the name of John the Baptist. We have met uh, a religious leader named Nicodemus. And then we met a woman, we don't even know her name, but she came to Jesus, all kinds of baggage, five divorces, living with another man known as the woman at the well. And what we have had with each of these characters is we've known a fair amount about them. We've known about their uh, history. Uh, uh, Two of them, we knew their name. We could read between the lines and put a lot together about their lives. And so it's been very helpful. This character that we have this weekend is not like that. We know very little uh, about him. And uh, he is noteworthy, not so much for the, the change that happened in his life, but what changed about what he had with him when he met Jesus. And we'll fill that in here a little bit as we go. There is a story behind the story, though, of this uh, individual. And I want to give you the backstory on him. And for that, we go into the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus... There is the narrative of uh, the Israelites being led by God into the wilderness. And so you have a million people out in a very desolate place. And of course, one of the very first things that's on people's minds is what are we going to eat? And we find that they are hungry and they cry out to God. Actually, they, they grumble against Moses. They grumble against God. You've led us into the desert to die. We had fruits and vegetables and everything we wanted in Egypt. Uh, why have you brought us here? And God provides miraculously for them every morning a kind of bread known as manna. Literally means, what is it? And he fed them for 40 years this way. Moses, at the end of his life in the book of Deuteronomy, gives now a reflection back upon what that whole thing was really all about. And we find that it wasn't about the manna. He says in Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so we find from the words of Moses that 40 years of eating manna every morning wasn't about the manna. It was about God taking them into a wilderness experience where they discovered that what man really needs is not bread and that the source of man's sustenance is not himself, but that this comes from God. That's what the whole thing was about. Now, in that we find that the food was a metaphor to communicate to Israel God's ability to meet his needs. And I wonder today if that might make you wonder a little bit yourself regarding what it is that we really need here today. Do we need money? Do we need food? Do we need clothing? 
Or is there a deeper need that the human heart has? I want you to keep listening. Now with that, we come now to our story in John chapter 6. And we pick it up in verse 1, and we have here Jesus himself on a holiday, on a kind of vacation. And I'll begin reading in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the other Gospels make it clear that what Jesus had in mind here was to get away with his disciples. They had been doing ministry, they were getting tired, and even Jesus needed a break. And so his intent in this is to get away, to get away from the crowds, to get away from the press of the, of the people, and to have a little downtime, a little R&R. Who doesn't love a little R&R? Even Jesus had a vacation. And so they withdraw then to a, a, a place. Let's look at the map here a second and just make sure we kind of know what's going on. So we're in the, we're in the north of, of, uh, of the country. Here we have the Sea of Galilee is the dark blue that you see there. And where Jesus goes is, he goes, I don't know if you can even see that little dot, probably not, but he goes over here to where the number four is. Uh, this is the modern-day Golan Heights. You might hear that in the news because they're always fighting about the Golan Heights. And it's a very hilly country. You can kind of see that from the terrain that's shown on the map. And it's very isolated and very solitary, which is why Jesus went there, but now becomes a big part of this story for reasons that you'll see in a moment. Verse 2 says that they get there, And lo and behold, there's a large crowd that is following them. He says in verse 5, lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him. Now, large crowd there is, I would call, a gross understatement. Because we're going to find a little later in the story that the size of this crowd uh, is that there are 5,000 men in this crowd. Now, women and children, I don't know why you didn't count in the total. Uh, you can take that up with the Holy Spirit uh, on your own. But uh, they didn't count the, the women and children. 5,000 men. And so the people that study this kind of thing suggest that the actual size of the crowd was somewhere between ten and 20,000 people. That's a big crowd, don't you think? Uh, out in a solitary, lonely location. So let's just like, let's cut that in half. Let's say it's 15,000 people that were actually, that's the size of this crowd. What does 15,000 people look like? And here's a picture of 15,000 people at one time uh, uh, gathered in one spot. So imagine with me, uh, you're on vacation, You've had the date highlighted on your calendar for months. You couldn't wait to get away with you and a few close friends. You had a timeshare out in the backwoods somewhere, cute little cabin, uh, and you had the picture up on the fridge. You couldn't wait to get there. 
The day's marked down. You're getting excited. Finally, the time comes. You head out into the backwoods of wherever it is, Michigan or somewhere. You can't wait to get away from it all. You're getting off the web. You're getting off the grid. You're turning off the cell phone. You just want to get away and get with nature and breathe the free air. And you arrive at your spot. You take out the coolers. You put them in the kitchen. And you notice that there's a hammock. And you're like, I've been waiting for a hammock moment. And you're just about to slide into the hammock and you look down the road and up the road come 15,000 of your not so closest friends. <laughs> the coworkers that you were looking to get away from. The neighbors that drive you crazy. Couldn't wait to spend a couple days away from them. For some strange reason, here comes the annoying in-laws as well with the crowd up towards the thing. You see them coming up the driveway and they're going, hey! How how do you respond in a moment like that? I rather think we would look at the crowd and as they're coming up, we'd say, no, (laughs) turn around, go back. I'm here to get away from you people. And yet that is not what we find Jesus doing at all. He lifts up his eyes and you know what he sees? He sees people much differently than we do. He sees people who have a need. And the need is not the apparent need. Now, what I mean by that, actually, let me, let me, let me read the text here. It says, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we going to buy bread so that these people can eat? And It says that he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get even a little. Now you're probably wondering, I wonder who the character is this week. Maybe it's Philip, because he is, after all, the very first guy that's mentioned in the story. Is it possibly Philip? Well... We have here Philip. I mean, he's a disciple. He's a leader in the early church. Later on in Acts 8, he's going to witness to the Ethiopian eunuch. I mean, this is kind of a hero guy. It'd be nice if Philip was our character, our person of the week. Well, he is not, actually. And we see here, with the disciples, a kind of bewilderment. And we see it even in, in with Philip. And you can almost imagine these guys... They're, they're, they've just brought the cooler into the kitchen. They're coming, they're walking back out, and now they see this crowd of 15,000 people, and they're just all like, oh no, right? And I can see some of them going, who told these people that we were going to, Peter says to Andrew, did you tell him? Andrew says, John, uh, John, did you tell him? Andrew's like, James told him. I don't know, you know, who, who let these people in on where Jesus was going to be at? Well, Jesus says to Philip, hey, Philip, we got a lot of people coming up here. How are we going to feed all these people? And Philip now makes an assessment, a kind, actually, I would say it's not even an assessment. He uses hyperbole and says, 200 denarii wouldn't even give these people a crumb. And 200 denarii was the better part of a year's wages. So put that in our common vernacular, whatever that number might be. That much money, if I went and bought that much bread, not even everybody would get a crumb. In other words, this crowd is so massive, and we are in such an isolated place, there isn't, an, uh, there isn't a grocery store or a 7-Eleven anywhere nearby. What on earth are we possibly going to do? 
And you see here now that this is a situation that is beyond the disciples' understanding. Verse 6 tells us that Jesus already knew that he, what he was going to do. And of course he knew what he was going to do. He's Jesus, right? He knows exactly what's about to happen. Now I wonder, is this the first time in the story of the Bible where we have a large, massive group of Jews who are out in a wilderness location without anything to eat? Hmm. Seems like I've maybe read that somewhere else in the story. And of course, five minutes ago, I was telling you what it was. So I hope in your mind, you're realizing that we're about to, we're we're seeing here a kind of reenactment of the Old Testament wilderness, Moses, manna moment. And that's about to dawn on these people in a most powerful way. Now, I wonder if possibly this story is suddenly getting a little interesting to you. And the reason that I say that is that as you sit here today, you're living a kind of wilderness moment in your life. You're in a time of need. You're in a time of crisis. And you're looking at the resources that you have available to you. You're 200 denarii. And then you're looking at the need that you have in your life and you're saying, I don't even begin to have the resources that I need in order to meet the crisis that I have in my life. You're living a kind of wilderness moment and you're thinking to yourself, how on earth am I ever going to make it? How am I ever going to have the resources that I need in order to survive what God has brought into my life? Will you keep listening as well? Enter now our person of the week. Look at verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, I'm sure you loved that always in the Bible being known as Simon Peter. Brothers love to be known not as themselves, but as their brother's brother. Simon Peter's brother said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So we find in the story, here comes the 15,000 people up the road, and, and the disciples are looking at it, and they're thinking, what, how on earth are we going to pay for all these people? Jesus sets them up, because he knows what he's going to do, by asking the question, hey, how are we going to feed all these people? Philip's like, I don't have the money to do it. Andrew finds some boy who has a little bit of food, and basically says, I got a little bit of this, but what does it, what's the matter? Because it, there's no way that this is going to be enough to feed all these people. So our character of the week is none other than the boy. The boy. Now what do we know about the boy? As I said at the beginning, almost nothing, right? Almost nothing. We don't know his name. We don't know his, his, his background. But we can safely assume a few things here, I think, in the story. First of all, this boy, uh, in, a, in a remote place like this, likely didn't get there on his own. In other words, he's probably a tag-along with his parents, who we'll call Mr. and Mrs. Jones. Mr. and Mrs. Jones, like the rest of the crowd, had either seen or heard about the miracles that Jesus had done. They probably lived somewhere over in Galilee, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and they had heard what Jesus had done. Perhaps they were from Cana, and they had seen the miracle of the water being turned into wine. And they heard that Jesus was over on this side of the Sea of Galilee, and they said, we've got to go be near him. So Mr. and Mrs. Jones and their little boy set off in order to be a part and to be near where Jesus was. Now I wonder if you can uh, sort of picture how this journey went. The son says to the dad, Dad, why are we walking so far? Son, 
Jesus is up there and we want to go be near him. Dad, are we almost there yet? Son, we're closer now than we were when you asked the last time. And we can fill in a few other blanks, I think. Dad, I need to go to the bathroom. Dad, I'm tired. Dad, I want to go home. But what is the obvious one that I have not included in that list? I'm hungry. That's right. Little boys get hungry. Even in our modern day, a little boy who's sitting in the back of a car going on vacation has rolled down the road 15 minutes and he is now hungry. That's right. Imagine a boy who isn't sitting in the back. He's having to walk, for goodness sakes. How long is it before he is saying, I'm hungry. And so we have then Mrs. Jones, who was a very good mother, knew exactly what was going to happen, like every good mother does. And so she decides that in advance, she's going to pack him a little bit of a snack. And she puts together in a little lunch pail for her son uh, a, a few things. First of all, it says five barley loaves. A barley loaf Don't think in your mind like a, sometimes we think, you know, like he was carrying five big wonder bread loaves of bread. It wasn't that at all. It was more like, it was more like this. It would have been a flat bread, almost maybe like a pita bread, round, small. And he would have had one, two, three, four, five of them. Okay. So he has a little bundle little saran wrap around it, no doubt. And (laughs) along with that, he had, it says, two fish. And these, and don't think like mahi-mahi here. What he had was he had two little pickled fish. Okay, very small. Think like a dried sardine, something like that. All right, yeah, yummy, right? (laughs) So he's got two little fish. And five little round flat loaves bundled up with love in a little brown paper bag that the Mrs. Jones had prepared for her son. So the picture that we're, we need to see here is the very thing that Andrew says, what is so little for so many people? Because this is not very much. I mean, if you, if you added all this together and the two little fish, this is basically what Olive Garden brings out for the, uh, the appetizer, Right? It's not very much. We're not talking about a meal here. We're talking about a snack. That's all that he had. That's all the food that Andrew could find. And Andrew states the obvious. And and frankly, let's say that it was a five-course meal. Does it really make that big of a difference when you got 15,000 people? But it's intentionally made this way to show the extreme of the situation. It's small. You have an extremely small amount You have an extremely large crowd. You have an extremely isolated location. And therefore, you have an extreme need. We need to see in the story. We have these extremes. So what's going to happen? How on earth are these people going to survive? Had nobody else thought about, hey, what are we going to eat? How are we going to make it? We're out in the hillside. And there's no way. Well, hold that thought. Because I want you to realize that this is exactly the kind of situation that God often puts us in, doesn't he? 
Oftentimes in our life, we find ourselves in situations where our instincts, our skill, our talents, our 200 denarii, our ability to maybe cobble something together is completely inadequate and doesn't answer the issues that we're facing. And we feel in our hearts a kind of desperation. Do you know what I'm saying? Where we are without resource and on our own, we are without hope. And we think to ourselves, the little bit that I have, there is no way that this is going to meet the need. And God delights to put us in situations where we cannot solve it. We cannot fix it. Why would he do that? Why does he say to Gideon in the Old Testament, when he wants him to go against the Midianites with their massive army, he says, Gideon, your army's too big. All right, send a bunch of them home. And Gideon says, okay. And he sends a bunch of them home. And God says, you know what? Your army's still too big. Uh, once you get rid of a bunch of, and they went through some other things and they got rid of a whole bunch of them. He whittles it down to 300 men against thousands and thousands and thousands of Midianites. Why, why did God do that? Because God knew that if, unless he got Israel in a situation where there is no way that they could take the credit for it, that he wouldn't get the glory. And God regularly brings his people into desperate situations where there is apparently nothing that we can do to survive it or thrive in it or overcome it. So that on the other side of the trial, we can look back and say, look what God has done. Well, let's find out what happens here. Look what it says. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place. I love some of the details in the story. Because you might think to yourself, well, sit down. What were they sitting on? John decides to give us the answer. Grass. There was grass there. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Well, now that's not something you see every day. What's going on here? The text says that Jesus gives thanks and he begins to take... The bread, and he begins to break it off, right? And break it off, and break it off, and break it off. And as he is breaking off the five loaves, what's actually happening here? Can you imagine the disciples? They're standing there, you know, they're, they're sort of the wait, waiters in the story. They're, sta- they're sitting there waiting f- at the basket, and they're watching the five loaves suddenly fill up. He's breaking it off, uh, breaking it off, and it's filling up the basket. And no doubt, at first, they're like, okay. And then they're like, and you can sort of see Philip saying to Andrew, <clears throat> something going on here? What's going on here? And Andrew's going, I don't know what's going on here. And there's just Jesus, choom, 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 doing that number like that. What is actually happening? Here's the miracle. Jesus, as he is breaking it off, is creating bread instantly. So you're at home, you say, I, I make bread all the time. You don't make bread like Jesus is making it. And if you can, 
if you can make bread like Jesus is making it, uh, then, then why don't you host a party for the whole church? And we'll give you this to start with, okay? He is, as he is breaking it off, he is creating bread. And I don't know if, if he tore it off and, and it just created as he threw it or it added back on here. I mean, who knows exactly how that was happening, but he is just throwing that down, filling basket after basket after basket, being sent out to the thousands who are there. And they begin to eat the bread and they begin to eat the fish. And there is now a miracle that is happening right before their eyes. You see, friends, Jesus is the creator of the world. John 1 verse 3 says this, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So we find then that Jesus is really good at creating things. He spoke, and these galaxies and universe suddenly are there. Imagine the power of that. You want to talk about creative power. It's awesome to think about. And even right now, today, his, his energy, his power is animating this universe. That atom and those electrons and those neutrons and those protons by the quadrillions multiplied throughout the universe, the power of the galaxies, it is Jesus' power asymmetrically behind it so the scientists look at it and go, well, we don't see Jesus in the atom. We broke it down, we broke it down, there's no Jesus in the atom. He is asymmetrically behind that. He is the power, he is the creator behind the universe. So that if Jesus can do that, if he can speak a word and the galaxies come into existence, it really isn't that big of a deal to sit there and to create bread for 15,000 people. Now, it's still a miracle, okay? But he's doing miracles all the time. He is the creator of the world. And the text says that Jesus creates bread and fish enough for everyone. In fact, verse 12, when they had eaten their fill, important to see that. Jesus is the satisfier of the needs of humanity. He provides everything that they need. In fact, the text says that there were leftovers. And, of course, we... We love a meal that has leftovers, do we not? And the text says that they gathered up the leftovers and there were enough for 12 baskets. And actually the baskets were not probably about this size. It's this particular kind of Jewish basket that they had, which is to me the perfect size leftover. A basket about like that. And there's debate as to why there were 12 of them. Is this some statement from Jesus regarding the 12 tribes of Israel? He's their Messiah. He's there to meet the needs of the 12. I I don't know. Here's what I do know is that there were 12 guys there who were happy to see leftovers, right? So I rather think it might have been for them. And they were happy for it, especially the single ones. (laughs) Now the story concludes with this. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. 
So what happens then, these people are eating bread. They might have been so far away, they couldn't tell exactly what was going on. They might have been saying, oh, this is pretty good bread. I wonder where where they get all the bread for all these people. I don't know, let's just eat. This fish is pretty good. I never really liked pickled fish that much, but this kind of has a nice flavor to it. it it's like... It's like fresh fish. I feel like I'm in Maine eating this fresh fish. I don't know, where do they get all the fish up here on the mountainside? I don't know, but let's just enjoy it. They're eating away, they're eating away, and then suddenly it begins to dawn on them that not only are they seeing a miracle, they're eating a miracle. And they begin to look at each other going, <gasps> and it dawns on them that Old Testament prophecy and the reenactment of the Moses Manna experience, it dawns on them that they are in a redemptive moment. They're having an encounter with the Messiah and they say he is none other than the prophet. And the text says they want to make him king on the spot. So you can almost see them going, hey, I think he really is, he's the prophet. And somebody goes, let's make him king right now. We'll eat great all the time. Let's do it. And so, yeah, let's do it. And so there begins to be a murmur through the crowd. You know, let's coronate him. All hail the king. All hail the king. All hail the king. And before that could happen, Jesus withdraws because it wasn't his time to be made king of Israel. That time would come. But it wasn't on a lonely mountainside with 15,000 people who just wanted to have their bellies filled. And so he withdraws. Now, I want to jump ahead quickly in the text because this is one of the miracles that Jesus tells us what it means. So back to the text, back to your Bibles, John 6. You'll notice that after the narrative regarding the feeding of the 15,000, we have the famous story. Many of the, most of the children I would think here would know the story of Jesus walking on the water, which begins in verse 16, goes through verse 20. And this is the story. Now what happens basically is this. The disciples, they leave after the miracle and they're going to Capernaum. Uh, Jesus goes to the mountainside by himself. In the middle of the night, the storm comes up. They haven't got there yet. Jesus comes to them walking on the water. They see a ghost, or they see him, they think it's a ghost. Peter says, if it's you, Jesus, tell me to come out on the water. He says, come. Peter gets out of the boat, begins to walk towards him. He sees the waves. He sees the winds. His faith begins to diminish. He begins to sink. Jesus, save me. Jesus saves him. They get in the boat. Boom. They're at Capernaum. That's the story. The next morning, the people, the 15,000, who presumably spent the night there, it's easy to go to sleep when you got a lot of food in your belly. Have you noticed that? That's why church is always on Sunday before lunch, not after. They wake up, they've had a good night of sleep, and they're like, okay, where's Jesus? It's time for breakfast. And they say, he's not here. Well, where is he? All the boats are still here. How did he get, where is he? And somebody says, I think I heard the disciples say they're going to Capernaum. And they say, let's get there. We're hungry. Let's go find Jesus at Capernaum. And so many of them get into boats and they go to Capernaum, which was on the north side there of the Sea of Galilee. And they arrive, certain, sure enough, there's, there is Jesus. And this begins a conversation between Jesus and these previously fed Jews regarding who he was and what this is all about. One part of this is most important for us today. It begins in verse 32. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. 
They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the bread of life. One of seven I am statements that Jesus made, along with, I am the light of the world, I am the gate, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the true vine. These I am statements from Jesus are nothing less than a self-disclosure by the Messiah regarding his true character and his true nature. And he uses metaphors to explain who he is. I am the gate. I am the vine. The people knew what a gate was. The people understood what a vine was. And here he says, I am the bread of life. And I want every single person that's here today to walk out of this room understanding what that means. It must be understood in the context of the feeding of the 15,000, which we just previously walked through. He describes the statement, I am the bread of life, in the latter part of the verse. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, I want you to notice the parallels that are in this passage. Let's walk through them. Here's the verse. Whoever comes to me and whoever believes in me. Notice there is no qualification to that. Jesus doesn't say just to you Jews and not to the Gentiles. He doesn't say just to the people that look like you and not the people that don't look like you. Not just ethnically you. Not just religiously you, not just people who've lived a good life and are righteous, they can experience this. Not just people who live in our geographical area, not just people who have riches, not just the educated people, not just the good people, not just the bad people. There is no qualification to whoever is there, whoever comes to me and whoever believes in me. Which is really exciting here in a room like ours where we have people from every background with baggage of every single kind where a group of sinners gathered here. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life to whoever. Without discrimination. No prejudice. No racism. At all. Simply come. Whoever. Next, comes to me and believes in me. These apparently go together. That to come to Jesus as the bread of life essentially means that I am believing in Him. I am trusting in Him. I am relying upon Him. So that when I come to Jesus, there is within my heart, there is a basic belief and understanding that He is the bread of life. That He is the sole satisfier of the, of the ache and the hunger and the longing in my heart. I have to come to Him. I have to believe in Him. I may qualify as the whoever, but if I do not come, if I do not believe, then I will not be satisfied by Him. And finally, shall not hunger, shall never thirst. And here we have the qualifier in this statement. In order for Jesus to be bread of life to anyone, they have to be hungry for Him. They have to be thirsty. 
And to those who come to him with a longing and an ache and a belief that he will satisfy, it is to them that he is the bread of life. And the good news is, is that sinners are hungry people. Sinners are thirsty. And by that, it is not physical. It is, it is a spiritual, soulish, God-wordly, desirous ache in my heart where I come to Him, not to have my belly filled, but to have my soul filled. To have the longing and the ache of my heart satisfied by Him as the bread of life. Do you see? It's metaphors. He's using metaphors. But the problem was in the day, the people missed the metaphor. They were there, they were seeking Jesus even in Capernaum because they wanted their bellies filled. And Jesus is like, I'm not about filling your bellies primarily. It is a giant picture that I am the one who satisfies the longings of your heart. And he alone. So what is Jesus saying? And what was the feeding of the 15,000 really all about? The miracle of the multiplying bread is a picture of the salvation that Christ offers to humanity and calls himself the bread of life. What what does that mean? Let's walk through it. What was the bread in the feeding of the 15,000? The bread was his body broken. What is the brokenness symbolizing? That brokenness was his crucifixion, his death on the cross. The fact that it was multiplied over and over and over and over again. What was that picturing? Picturing the fact that his death on the cross means atonement for our sins. And that atonement is multiplied over and over and over and over and over again to whoever comes to him and believes. Multiplied across the world and across the centuries, even to this room here today. That whoever believes in him, that work, his death in our place on the cross, the it is efficacious, it is, it is available, and it is saving, multiplied to whoever comes. The crowd is a picture of mankind. In a very real way, we could say each of us was there on the, on the hillside that day. They represented us. What is the requirement? You have to be hungry. You want to know why many people, no doubt even in our church, come to church, they have a religious sort of moment here in an experience, but it doesn't make one bit of difference in their life. They get back in the car, they go back to their life, and nothing has changed. And maybe even they leave there thinking, I don't really get what it's all about. Do you know the difference between somebody who this makes a difference in their life and somebody who it doesn't? Here's the difference. you got to be hungry. You know, a fat man, a fat man who's just had a big meal can go to Strax and Van Til down the road and you know what? He's not going to buy very much. Because everywhere he looks, it's like, oh, I'm not really that hungry. But if you go grocery shopping when you're hungry, have you ever noticed? What happens? Everything looks good. You're buying tons of stuff, right? You get to the end, the bill's massive. You're thinking, what happened? What's the problem? The problem is you went shopping for groceries when you were hungry. What a difference being hungry makes. And spiritually, the same thing is true here in this room today. If you are hungry, 
If your soul is thirsty, the presentation of Jesus as the bread of life is something that is transformational. And it can be for you. But if your heart is hard, if you've heard it all before, if you know everything, if you are spiritually superior, if you are uh, trying to earn your salvation by your good works, whatever it might be, this kind of thing, it's a bunch of rubbish. What a difference being hungry makes. No doubt that's one reason God takes us into the wilderness is to make us hungry for him. What does eating symbolize? The eating of the bread symbolizes me personally receiving the offer of Christ into my... It's a picture of believing. And we all know what eating means. You did it this morning. You'll do it a couple more times today. It is to take something. It is to put it in my mouth. And by doing that, I am receiving it. And I'm chewing it. I am am making it personal. And when I swallow it, it now becomes a part of me. That is a picture of what it means for Jesus to be the bread of life. It is for me to take the the offer of his salvation, who he is in his person and his work, and to not just simply see it, but to receive it and to bring it into my heart and into my soul for it to become a part of me. He now becomes my bread of life. Satisfaction, they ate till they were filled is a picture of the fullness of Christ, the completeness of Christ. And that extra bread is just a, it's a, it's a picture of the fact that, that Jesus is all sufficient for all and whoever would believe, whoever comes to him to eat. There is more than enough of him to go around. So that the bottom line of this story, what we can say is this. When Jesus said that I am the bread of life, it didn't mean that he was a baker. It meant that he is a savior. And hungry people all over the world who come to him with an understanding of what that means will have their souls satisfied. Not just in this life. Those people ate the bread and the next morning they were hungry again. The bread that Jesus offers is a kind of bread that lasts into eternity. That's what he means, shall never hunger again. I am soul satisfaction now and forever. He is the bread of life. And this is what the crowd did not understand. Much like the woman at the well who just wanted the water so she wouldn't have to go to the well to drink again. Jesus said, the kind of water that I offer, you'll never be thirsty again. The kind of bread that he is, is the bread of life, is a kind of bread we will never hunger again. And it seems to me that all too often people seek Jesus the very same way to this day. There is a kind of thing that comes into our life. We suddenly have a health issue. We suddenly lose our job. We suddenly have our child who's walking out and and walking on the wild side. We've got some issue in our relational thing. And we feel a kind of despair. And all of a sudden, we're going to church. I need Jesus right now because I need him to fix the problem that I'm having. I am hungry right now. And you know what? We're glad you're here, if that's you. If you popped in here because you need a little Jesus, we're just glad you're here. But what I want you to realize is that Jesus could write you a million-dollar check for every financial issue that's a burden in your life, and you still go to hell. What you need is not 
a temporary fix. What we all need is eternal life. He is the bread of life. I am the bread of life. I am the broken and multiplied Savior of the world. That's what this miracle is all about. And the boy provided the bread, but it was merely the means by which Jesus could produce a metaphor, a picture of what salvation is all about. And that's what it's about. His, his mission, his love for mankind, his willingness to be broken and multiplied for the salvation of millions of people. In fact, I wonder, as he's doing the miracle, what was Jesus thinking? What was every one of those tears a picture of? This is my body, which is broken for you. This is my body for you, and you, and you, and you, and you. Come and eat. Come and eat. And find that I am bread of life. And today, that offer is still available for all who will believe. Whoever comes to him will find their soul satisfied in his breadness, in his satisfaction spiritually. And that's why the question is, he is the bread of life, but is he your bread of life? Have you come to him? Have you believed in him? Have you trusted in him? Jesus offers himself to us. And each one of us must decide, is he a trustworthy source of eternal life or not? And if so, will you personally receive him by faith as your savior? And for us as Christians, those who have already come to him, It's a wonderful reminder of what Christ has done for us, that he is our bread of life, multiplied by the billions to all who have believed. And we're a part of that. We are a part of the metaphor. We're a part of the miracle. Praise God. And Father, we come right now, we want to say thank you for sending Jesus And Jesus, thank you for putting pictures into the story that we can relate to. We all understand what it means to eat bread. The world over, people eat bread to satisfy the hunger. And Lord, I pray that that simple picture today would produce in us a great understanding and love for our Savior. Thank you that he is to us bread of life. And I pray for the person here who maybe this message has created a little bit of an appetite, that there's a little, there's a little hunger, there's a little hope that the 200 denarii that, that has been trusted in really won't produce much of anything but that Christ is the great Savior. Lord, I pray that you would bring that person 
to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I pray that every one of us that are already believers, that we might continue to live a kind of life that finds its satisfaction in Christ, that doesn't revert to the living by the 200 denarii, but continues to live on the bread of life. Jesus, thank you for being torn and broken and multiplied for our salvation. We love you. We love you. And we give ourselves to you again today. In Jesus' name, amen.